Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we're talking about how do you fund the people. Welcome, new friend to the show, Kristen Richardson Jordan, a published poet, activist, and elected council member for Harlem District 9. Kristen has been a member of AALUSC, African Ancestral Lesbian United for Social Change, and the Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Kristen stems from a family whose roots are in Harlem for three generations. Kristen continues to serve her community by being an advocate for police accountability, affordable housing, health care, and environmental justice. Kristen is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America and spends her time engaging in outreach, mutual aid, and bi-weekly task forces, which yours truly, that's me, is a part of. And also welcome another new friend to the show, Kiara Imani. Kiara is an attorney, writer. She can be heard on Los Angeles KBLA Talk 1580 AM. She is the co-founder of Like You Cards. She has been featured in Forbes, Hello Sunshine, Oprah Magazine, The Huffington Post, Blavity, and many more. But I think the operative magazine there was Oprah. Her new debut memoir, Therapy Isn't Just for White People, is available August 9th where books are sold. Barnes and Nobles, or how about this, your local bookstore. How about this even better? How about your local black bookstore? And if it's not there, ask them to feature it. And welcome back returning friend John Laster, comedian who was featured on three seasons of BET's Comic View. He hosts the first and second underground comedy festival here in New York City. And he is the creator of Blap, a black shopping app that makes it easier to find black owned businesses in your neighborhood and online. Want to see me live? Check me out on June 17th in New Jersey. That's Asbury Park, New Jersey at the Asbury Fest Hall and Beer Garden. And in Ventura, California at the Majestic Theater for, yes, Barkfest, June 24th. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. And a special shout out to our Patreon friends, especially our new ones, Hannah and DC. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. It's because of you we keep going. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Be careful sexually. You don't want those monkey pox. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter.
it is a pleasure to have you here today. Right now, I have um, back John Laster, comedian, friend of mine. Kiara is a new friend to the show. Welcome, Kiara. Hello. Is it Kiara or Kiara? I say Kiara. Okay, Kiara Imani. She has a new book coming out. And I was just talking to her about how wonderful your YouTube video is. Um, the book is called Therapy Isn't Just for White People. And it's coming out. She's also the co-founder of Like You Cards. Yes. Which is like, um, and then we'll get in, back into the book. But I'm really curious about this Like You Cards. What yeah. is that? So they are getting to know you cards to help you get to know people better, broken down into two different color groups. The yellow or more lighthearted questions, because sometimes when you're in conversation with people, you might not be there yet to be going deep. You know, I think vulnerability is wonderful, but in safe spaces. And then the blue questions are a little bit deeper. So if you're like me and you don't like small talk, it lets you get to know people on a deeper level. And the idea is to connect people after this crazy COVID, super political, you know, space we've been living in. I think it's been really hard for people to find ways to connect outside of COVID's crazy, the weather's crazy. So uh, what you watching on Netflix? And just reminding people how important it is to get to know the humanity of others. Oh, I love that because I think you're so right about how people don't connect anymore or they're having social anxiety. Um, John knows this from me working at the uh, Comedy Cellar. So John knows, for example, like when I'm at the cellar, I don't hang out. I go right home. And then I had a another comedian friend say to me when he re-entered the world, everyone look like monsters. Yeah. So I think you're, I think you're, you're hitting on something big here. Yeah. We're really excited about it. We've gotten such great feedback. I had a friend who's spicy Latina telling me how she was having a really hard time just getting connected with her in-laws because they have very different political views. She's very liberal. They are not, and they just hadn't been able to connect. And she was, you know, really saying it was taking a toll on her marriage. And they ended up playing like you cards over the holidays. And she was crying and said it was the first time that they had had conversation where they saw people as humans, as opposed to through the lens of their labels or all of the stuff that's happening in the world and all of the stress in their family. And so that really made me happy. I think that's beautiful. I mean, it should make you happy. I mean, when your work is able to, to do good in the world. And, yeah. you hear, and you hear someone, you know, share that back with you. It's great. It's, it's, it's priceless. It's a lot of bad in the world. It's a lot. There's a lot of Republicans out here. Sure are. Don't even get me started. <laughs> there is a lot of, there's a lot of bad. The idea of being able to block everyone who doesn't believe what you believe, it works during 2020, right? We were all home, we were online, I don't like what you have to say, block. But now that we're back into the real world, you don't get to block your coworkers, you don't get to block the person at the bank teller stand, you don't get to block your in-laws, you're having to go to family dinners, and so people are having to refigure out, how do I do life with this person, even though we don't see the world the same way, at all. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, um, I'm at an age now where my body responds immediately to things I don't like. So I have hot flashes, basically. I mean, I, I was told to start saying my age, so I'm over 50. 
It gets, it, as Bev Smith, who I just had on the podcast, she said, you have to start saying your age so young people can know that they can look like I do. I wouldn't <laughs> guess 30. I wouldn't guess 30. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so yeah, I, I'm over 50, but it's true. I have hot flashes. I'm at that phase where if someone says something I don't like, I start sweating immediately. Like it shows, like it'll just, I'll start, I'll just, like I'm editing a script right now with someone who's co-writing with me. If they write something I don't like, I just immediately break out into a hot flash. It's That's hilarious. Just, it's instant. <laughs> I can't control it. So it hasn't happened as much on stage, thank God. I think somehow, John, I don't know why, but some every now and then it does, though. And I have to stop on stage and I have to go, okay, just y'all going to have to give me a moment. <clears throat> There was a woman there that that worked at Fox News. She almost gave me a hot flash. Oh, oh, really? In the audience? In the front row. Oh my! <gasps> oh, the one who's like the horrible. You can't say no. Her name. You know what? She wasn't. She wasn't an anchor. She was a producer. But you know, I'm hosting, so I'm asking people what they do, and she said, "You don't want to know." And I was like, oh, come on, you know, share with the class. And she said, I work at Fox News. But I know what you mean about your body temperature going up. And fortunately, her daughter was sitting next to her. And her daughter said, it's making her ill. Her health is starting to suffer because of what she's doing there. She doesn't believe in, you know, and she said most of them don't. You know, they live in New York City. They're kind of those people that live in the Midwest. You know what I mean? Talking about this replacement theory. Then they go to a bar on the Upper West Side where they get off with Black people and Latino people. You know what I mean? They're selling it to the person in West Virginia. But when she said it, I know what you mean, Marina. Immediately, I was almost ready to pounce. And then I backed off when her daughter said, she's not like that. And it's and her health is starting to, to be affected by her knowing that her there's blood on her hands. She's the type of woman that would go home and cry after she saw what happened in Buffalo, knowing that she was a part of that. You know what's funny? I, I, I used to, I interned at Fox News because it was in DC. I lived in Virginia. I wanted to be in entertainment, weren't a lot of options. And I really loved my time there. I learned a lot. I had a great producer. And one thing I always told people, which I thought was so bizarre and why I knew I couldn't come back to work as an employee, because for me, I need my work to align with my values. But I would say a large majority of the people were not super conservative. They were just producers or engineers or camera people looking for a job and Fox was hiring to the point where when something big happened in DC, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, they would pool their resources because they're all you know friends and would share cameramen and use the same footage. So they're selling this idea that they're enemies and they have these polar opposite takes. And I'm sure there are hosts specifically and you know people that are hosting shows that believe what they're saying. But so many people, they just it, it was just a job. And now we have joining us Kristen. And uh, Kristen, you can unmute yourself. We never want you muted, by the way, ever, ever, and never, ever, ever. I am so excited and honored. As you know, I'm a huge fan of you. Uh, I've, <laughs> it's like, I feel like I stalk you. <laughs> She's a, a poet, a, a published poet, which I love, activist an elected council member for Harlem District 9. I recently um, contacted you because of the fact that I 
live in Harlem, have lived in Harlem for over 20 years, which we just had Bevy Smith on the podcast. And she was saying anyone who's moved to Harlem 20 years ago, that means you really, really moved in and love Harlem because 20 years ago, people weren't, well, I would say even maybe I've been here for 25 years. People weren't coming to Harlem like they are now. You know, I've made a choice to invest in the quality of life of Harlem. And tell me what you think about Harlem today. Wow. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Harlem today. Well, a a bunch of things. Um, You know, I, I have to say, especially because more recently I've been having a lot of these land use battles um, that I think when I think of Harlem today, I do think of this ever present problem of gentrification because we are seeing a lot of displacement. We just saw the census numbers and there were 10,000 black residents of Harlem. Um, from 10 years ago to now that were displaced from the neighborhood. Um, all income brackets under 60,000 were displaced as well. So, so, that's, so that, that's something that's just very pressing on my mind and heart um, uh, right now. Uh, but I also think of Harlem today as, as like change and next generation, which is what my campaign was about. I'm third generation Harlem. And it's uh, it's been a long time coming to see someone who is younger in elected leadership in this community. Um, the the politicians in in Harlem, I mean everywhere, but in Harlem in particular, uh, they hang on for a long, long time. You know, hanging on to the bitter end uh, and not passing that torch. Um, so, so. It's it's uh it's been really cool to see just a shift in political energy. Um, I'm the youngest ever in the seat at 35, um, and uh, and I'm also the first out LGBTQ person in the seat. Um, so we're we're trying to embrace a Harlem that really does include everybody um, and is really for everybody, including those who have been marginalized and kept out in the past. And at the same time, as I mentioned before, a, a Harlem that also includes its past and keeps uh, people who who are here uh, for three generations, like my yeah, family. Yeah, and and you know what? Thank you because I voted for you, and when I saw your picture. It was like, oh, my God, I don't know who did your photo, but there was color. There was like I usually get these pictures of council people in my mailbox. And it's like just kind of blah, like you stood out. Like I was like, oh, yeah, like (laughs) like she looks cool. She looks like someone I know, someone I can talk to, which I did. I found I sought you out, didn't I? And we found each other. And um, I'm just really excited for your political career. I really am. And I'm glad that, you know, in everything that we were just talking about with, you know, like specifically with what Kiara was talking about, like she created a game where you have a deeper conversation and, you know, how we're so polarized right now. Like, do you feel like, like how are you navigating this very divided political atmosphere. Yeah, it's rough. It's it's definitely rough stuff because um you know, I so so I will say I my background is in poetry, right, and creative writing um and performance. Uh 
but I didn't run for political office in order to have it be a performance. And yet a lot of what we see, I think, with the polarization is very performative. Um, and it's very much like, oh, well, how do I say this and score some political points? And then the other side can say this and score some political points. And, you know, at the end of the day, the ones who are getting hurt are the people. So we we do need to to work on that. Um, I don't think we need to like fake compromise just to fake compromise, but I do think we should start looking at things that are really win-win solutions and, and things that could encompass everyone's concerns, you know, around different topics, right? So I believe very firmly in a woman's right to choose. I completely, I'm completely and utterly upset and disgusted about what I see as steps back in terms of women in our bodies and our right to choose. And, um, and I think, what's missing there is education. So, you know, at the same time that I'm a huge advocate for a woman's right to choose, I don't then believe that we just should go around and, and scream about, um, you know, well, people are sexist and bigots. Do I think there's sexism in in the women's oppression, in having an argument where you don't allow women the right to choose? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but that's a, a larger political education conversation. Um, and that's part of why, like when I was running, I had this whole thing about disrupt the district with radical love. And people kept being like, well, what do you mean radical love, right? Some folks were like, what do you mean radical? Like that was, that was scary for them. Uh, but but even, even some of the radicals were like, well, what do you mean this love thing? Because, you know, some of them aren't worthy of that, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's like, <laughs> this, this is... Um, this is what I think is some of the issue is if we dehumanize people, we get nowhere. So we really, we really need to work on humanizing everybody. Yeah, and which I think, Kiara, I think that speaks to your book. Hey. Look, I'm trying to tie it all in because I have, I have some really strong people today. So I'm trying, I was like, how do I get both of them? How do I do it? Um, but I think it really does speak to, um, your book here, which is perfectly timed about um, therapy and trauma and how we all deserve therapy. Oh, uh, I'm trying to get the book title as I say this. Oh, everyone. Therapy yeah. isn't just for white people. <laughs> yeah. Therapy isn't just for white people. We definitely need it. Right. Absolutely. And I loved what Kristen was saying about humanizing people. I think that is something I'm incredibly passionate about, especially as it pertains to storytelling. I think that's why it's important to be students of stories of people who we don't necessarily know or align with, because that's how we learn about a different people group. And I think once we're starting to learn and understand people, even if we disagree, we might be able to disagree through love. Because once you know how somebody was raised, what their trauma is, why they respond the way that they do, you're not going to talk to them the same way. And so with my book, Therapy Isn't Just for White People, it is definitely a call for the Black community to pay attention to our own trauma. Trauma, as I have come to understand it, meaning 
anything that negatively affects the way we see God, ourselves, or the world around us. And a lot of times when we think trauma, we think very big things like somebody in my family died or I went through this terrible divorce. And those are very big traumas. But there are also these little micro traumas like the everyday. I think it was Nelson Mandela who was saying that racism is a thousand little slights. It's the little slights, the little things that happen when you go to work. I definitely can resonate with looking uh, younger than my age and uh I'm an attorney or went to law school, not practicing as much anymore, but have definitely been in meetings where people are like, wait, you're the lawyer? I'm confused. And and just to see the look on their faces. And I've had people vocalize. I had a white lady tell me one time, wow, I was doing some research and you went to a better law school than me. That's crazy. And she was just so surprised and just having to deal with those little micro traumas every single day on a daily basis and the way that it affects us and our mental health, which affects our physical health, our cortisol levels, and can actually terminate life. Our mental health and our physical health can affect our life expectancy. So I think it's definitely a call to the Black community to really pay attention to micro traumas, to traumas, and to uncover, unpack, heal from them and move through them. And at the same time, my book is very much a narrative of a lot of my own stories. And I think it's really important for white people because the one thing I constantly hear is, well, what's so hard about being black in 2022? You have affirmative action. You're taking all of our jobs. The world is easy for you. It can't be that hard to be black. Just all the crazy right-wing talking points that we hear, the whole replacement theory thing. And I think it is really important for white people, especially now, to be students of untold Black stories, because if they do not see us as human and they do not understand our pain and our trauma, we can't possibly ask them to be allies. Ashe, Ashe, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And if I if I could just jump in, because I definitely see a lot of ways in which um, the work connects, because what, what you're talking about with addressing trauma, that's the place that we need to get to on a societal level as well. You know, we have a way, I, I did an op-ed a few weeks back um, that was, it was titled, What is Black Pain, right? And we have a way in our society of uh, erasing uh, black pain and not seeing the full picture of the traumas we go through. And it's, you know, and it's why, um, you know, when we talk about something like policing in schools, we have, you know, a real disparity between majority white and wealthier schools um, that do have therapists that are doing the therapy um, instead of police presence. They're working with children and childhood trauma. And then we have uh, the disparity with our schools where there's this narrative of, well, we have to just get cops in there as opposed to looking at therapy and childhood trauma. Um, So I think you're speaking to something that that is is absolutely connected to to like policy and politics too. Absolutely. That's why I, I knew it would be great to have both of you on. At first I was overwhelmed and then I said, no, this works. This makes sense. Doesn't oh, it make absolutely. sense, John? Absolutely. I think it's a uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm I one of the first things I have an app to support black owned businesses, but one of the It's one, called Blap. It's called Blap, yes. One of the Yes, please download that. But um, one of the things that we, I thought was very important to put on the app was therapy. You know, because we as black people, I'm a fucking grown 
ass black person. I've never been to therapy. I'm ashamed to say that. Um, and I know I need to get there, but um, yeah, trauma over time. And I'm glad, Kristen, that you mentioned or both of you guys mentioned the micro cuts and the when you talked about gentrification, you used the word displacement because I do believe that there's trauma, there's you know things that are going on in our day to day lives um, in these communities that affect policy, that affect us personally. But I I believe that we have to ground all this conversation in truth. And saying gentrification makes it seem like one neighborhood that used to be Harlem and mostly black somehow became all these white people moved in. And we leave out the part about, no, there was displacement. There was the not renting of black people. There was asking black people to leave. There was the going into these black establishments saying, you don't have sprinklers. Your counter's not far enough from that uh, bag. We're gonna shut you down so that they could open up the muffin shop. This was not happenstance. I think that all of this needs to be grounded in truth. And these traumas that we talk about, you know, a lot of times in in our day-to-day lives, it still has to be grounded in truth. I I mean, I I love the radical love thing, but if we start with the truth, you know what I mean? I'm not I'm I'm not I'm I'm not forgiving people who haven't asking for forgiveness or pretending to be nice to somebody who keeps stepping on me and thinks that they're not stepping on me. Um, so Can I, I offer I, I, a, a differing, different viewpoint on that? Absolutely. I, I That's think, what we're here for. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think truth and season is incredibly important. So, for example, your grandma died. Let's say your grandma passed. If I walk up to you when you're crying and I say, well, she's dead, that could be true. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time to say it and the right way to say it. Whereas if I take you and sit next to you and ask you, what's your name? What's going on? Why are you crying? Oh, I hear you. That's really sad. And in the midst of the conversation, well, yeah, I don't think she's coming back. I'm so sorry. That's a very different approach. And I, I think sometimes we, and, and understandably so, we know the truth. And a lot of white people in this country either don't know the truth or they turn a blind eye. They they should know and they don't know. And it's really frustrating and it makes us angry. And I think all of that's fair. But when I just think about what works on a human psychology level, shouting the truth at somebody very rarely actually changes perspective. It might make us feel better, but I don't know that it actually does the work that we want it to do. Right. And well, I, displacement, I, though, I don't think we hear that enough. Yeah. That's the only thing. Absolutely we don't. not. Nor, or, or, or the idea of the trauma that we have gone through, um, Kiara. To, to your point, the trauma that we've gone through is now trying to be denied. So I understand what you're saying about, oh, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. That's okay. But what we're saying is true. They are now trying to say, you know what? That's not true. It, it, it wasn't so bad. Or let's not talk about that because white people are going to be affected by it. It's going to hurt their feelings. That's where they're headed. And to me, that is a dangerous place to actually start to downplay our trauma. Yeah. That to me is, is nonsensical. We must start with the truth no matter how ugly it is. 
acknowledge my trauma and then we so can to, we can do the uh we can do the so nicest. so to be clear you know i i stand on street corners and yell through bullhorns and so i am not i am not neither distant nor above the um screaming at people uh because you know because that happens too it happens too and and the activist in me is you know i'm always going to do that um because sometimes it it that sometimes it is the season for an outcry Right. And that is and that's what's needed in that moment is the outcry, you know, and then which I think is a, a great, a great word. That's why I, I think I say all the time. Truth in season is important. Sometimes when it's um, when the danger is immediate, there's no time for having a nice conversation. And I think it's being able to use wisdom to ask. When does it make sense? When is it an emergency? And I need the point across and I, I don't have time to be nice anymore versus when does it make sense to actually try to change this person's heart, which might mean having a really tough, but also tiring conversation. I don't think that one is better than the other, but I do think if, if we're going to be effective in this movement, we're going to have to exercise wisdom and knowing when to use which tools we have in our bag. Yeah, there's some people I don't waste my time with. As you were as you were like talking, I was thinking about how I just cut someone off in my mind yesterday. I said, I'm done. I, I just I don't like I don't I haven't I have no history with you. I have no one I, I really don't like need you in my life. And you're not gonna change anything moving forward in this world. So like I've just kind of like I don't need to explain myself. I don't need to correct you. You will learn some way, but I'm not going to be the one to teach you. I had it. I had an investor the other day, and she said my boyfriend said he's he, don't don't worry. He's not like a he's not a right wing person. But he said that once we start supporting black owned businesses, just black owned businesses that are on black, then it's going to be a slippery slope. That's why he doesn't support. He thinks that, oh, what if we cut it off to Asian-owned businesses and and da, 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 da. so how do we get through to those people? Like, how do we start advertising or marketing to those people? And I said, we don't. I'm not going to waste 10 seconds of my time with some white dude who you say didn't vote for Trump. But when you start talking that slippery slope, we have had a different, a unique set of headwinds since we got here about building black wealth, about the circulation of the black dollar. That is the problem I'm trying to solve. Not convince some white boy who's not interested in, in downloading an app. If you're not willing to do that, bro, <laughs> I, I, I will find the people who will support it. I love how they try to say voting for Trump, like I didn't vote for Trump. That's like, that's at the <laughs> bottom, so bottom, bottom of the variable. Yeah, like, okay, and yes, good. Do you want a cookie? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's almost like, you know, kind of like the thing that, that, that Malcolm X used to say about, you know, should we give you a cookie if you stick a knife into my back and pull it out six inches? No, you got to pull it out and then start the healing. Blap is the healing. So basically he's saying, well, I see that these black people are struggling. They down on the floor. Why do you got to help them up, though? You know what I mean? I'm not a Trump supporter, but I don't need to help them up. Why? I'll find the people who do want to help our community. I'll find the people who do want to circulate this dollar because that's where a lot of our problems lie. You know, we live in a capitalist society. You're not going to fix it marching and screaming. 
you got to find a way to get the dollar circulating. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's how all marginalized communities find their way out of this situation. And I'm not going to waste a scintilla of my time so, trying to. I hear that. Oh, I do want to go into these articles right away so that this will continue our conversation, which is so good because you spoke about healing. Right. And I will mention that someone tweeted out, I, I wish I had the person who said it, but they said, we talked more about Chris, the slap with Chris Rock and Will Smith than we talked about Buffalo. That's real. That's where we are. As a community, we need to really focus on what just happened. And I get that, but I have noticed how people have like pushed it aside because it's too painful. Um, and when you talk about healing, you know, healing will, rec this, this story is about tr immediate trauma and how do we heal from it and how do we also address it at the same time. Shania Ann Washington memorialized the victims of the shooting at Topps Friendly Market because the police officer that was killed used to help her with her groceries. He took away people who did for the community just because of the color of their skin. It's an eye opener. It's a reality check, Washington said. An 18-year-old white gunman in body armor killed 10 black shoppers and injured three in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Federal authorities in, are investigating this as a hate crime. The attack resurfaced deeply rooted problems and trauma that the black community has been facing, specifically in Buffalo, for generations. Healing the community will require systemic change in addition to economic support. Organizations and charities from all over the world have begun providing food donations for those who relied on the market for groceries. But they say healing will require not only immediate flood of charity, but also systemic solutions, economic investments, and mental health counseling that are long lasting. So I'll just open that up for discussion. I, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up Buffalo and um and I'm glad you make the comparison because I think I think uh, that it, it it's it's beneath the surface but it's not it's every day like we've been talking about right so we saw that outburst of of violence in the in the massacre but we also see that there's violence in like why is there one store. Why is the neighborhood in that state? Um, that that's a form of violence. And you know, to go to um, uh, what John was talking about, you know, the way we spend dollars, especially government public dollars, is violent. The way that money is being spent is violent, uh, and and it's a, a a disservice and a disinvestment from our communities and. Um, and, and even with uh, talking about the need to support economically, I mean, we, we, one of the struggles we're having locally is the MWBEs, which are the minority and women-owned businesses, don't include us. That's, I mean, that's the fact. If we start breaking down the dollars, we see that who's benefiting from those programs are majority white women and people of color who are not black. Amen. I Amen. Love, I love that you said that. And I think it is all of that is very connected to trauma because as a small business owner in America, it's this isn't easy. This is hard. They make it hard. The rules are hard. 
filing taxes, the tax code is crazy. Uh, trying to figure out how to make sure your business is registered properly and you have all of your correct licensing and you filled out all of the appropriate paperwork. And if you try to open a bank account, got to have your EIN. Heaven forbid you try to get some loan, uh, some loan money. So if you're, for example, dealing with your own personal trauma and you are operating from a place of lack, because you saw that your parents never had enough and you were always saving and scrounging and you have taken that model on now when you're starting your own business and you're not taking the appropriate risks or you're really stressed out and you don't have the time to file your paperwork and then your business is no longer activate. Like in order to even have a sustained business, our minds, our souls have to be at a place where we're ready to receive and Dealing with the stuff that we have going on inside, I think, really prevents a lot of us from even being able to tackle the world and all of the obstacles that are thrown at us. And it's exhausting because we're doing that, but at the same time, fighting from the other side to make sure that there aren't more obstacles thrown at black and brown people and dealing with the realities of us getting a lot less loan money than everybody else is getting. And there's just so much that come into play. And I think a lot of times we're talking about the numbers and the statistics and the facts, but these are statistics about real people who have dealt with real racism throughout the course of their lives and are now having to compete in an area where other people are Everybody, I think, has trauma, but we're dealing with the everyday traumas. If I went through a breakup or, oh, the Netflix is higher. Like, we're dealing with the everyday trauma and the first world trauma, but then we're also dealing with the racial trauma on top of that. It's like a double load. Yeah. And then on top of that, again, then you get hit with Buffalo. And it's like, oh, my God, what am I to think about that? What am I to feel about that? But again, even the Buffalo situation started in a guy who was trafficking something that was not true. It started with that. His whole manifesto was a bunch of facts about replacement theory and stuff about that, which is where there was no pushback on something that's not true. We have to start with the same facts. We got to push back when somebody says, oh, what, uh, these, these people of color are replacing you. They're bringing these people in here to replace you. It's not true. The average age, the, the median age of a white person in America is 43 years old. 43-year-old people don't have a lot of kids. The median age of people non-white is around 28, 29. That's your replacement. Let's start with the facts so that we don't have people running around with this nonsense in their head, feeling like, oh, my God, they're taking something. They're not. The average age of people your color is 43. I was so disappointed that, uh, well, number one, that we're not talking about Buffalo anymore. But number two, that there wasn't enough debunking what was inside of that manifesto. Because for anybody who read read it, it was horrendous. But it was presented as if it was a scientific paper. And I had to get off the internet because just on Twitter and looking at people who were, you know, reading the manifesto, some white people like, well, he makes really good points. He says most of his information came from the internet. That is not a credible source. It's not credible. And that's what's disturbing to me. So I understand that, you know, that that there's going to be trauma and then there needs to be policy, you know, to to, to maybe affect change, like maybe making that uh, hate crime a federal crime, you know, which, which hasn't been done. So maybe that's where the policy is. Of course, black people, we need to deal with the trauma of having to see something like that on that macro level. But we also need to push back with the truth. 
so that the next person that hears, oh, this replacement theory, then they Google it, that, that we com completely debunk it when having the conversation about it, that we completely debunk the idea of gentrification by calling it, just like Kristen said in the beginning, no, these people are being displaced. There are realtors in the neighborhoods that these people want to move into that will not rent to black people. There are black people being removed from places. There are police coming into local businesses, writing tickets to get those businesses out of there. It's a systematic what, removal yeah. of people. What is it in our community that we don't, because I'm in my head, I immediately think of the view. And when Whoopi incorrectly said that, you know, uh, when she was talking about Jews in the Holocaust, that it wasn't about race. They took her off the show. I mean, you know, when anything is anti-Semitic, as you know, it should be addressed and it is addressed. I mean, with immediacy, it's like you cannot say certain things about the Jewish community. You will find out immediately. You will get fired. You'll be let go. These things are debunked really fast, you know, and there is still a lot of anti-Semitism as we see it's rot the hatred is there. This is part of that manifesto, I believe too, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, the, 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 replacement, the root of it, right? The replacement theory is that there's this, this, you know, this group of Jews that are using people of bringing people of color into the country. But the, the, the top of it is that there's this powerful group of Jews that are bringing these people in. A lot of times they don't mention that in the replacement theory. That's what the replacement theory is, is that there's this. this that wasn't in his. I thought that was. In oh, his yeah. Work. That's in his manifesto. No, it's in his manifesto. He's but I'm saying that when they describe it, it they on don't the report news. report it. Yes. Yeah. They don't start off at what it really is. What they, what they say is, is it's this powerful group of Jews that are bringing in people of color. Sometimes they just leave that part out. So to oh, your point, imagine Marina, if we all were to like. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point. What we get in the in the in the news of the reporting of, you know, what happens to us and how we say anything. Yeah, we don't have the same backup. Yeah, we just don't get that. We don't get the same. Uh, I think it's complex. It's multifaceted and it's incredibly strategic uh, because when we it, I mean, it's just really hard to compare black what happened to black people to what happened to Jewish people, both horrific, but just very very different in lots of different ways. But one thing that we also see that the Jewish community has been very strategic about goes back to the storytelling. And I read the diary of Anne Frank. We spent a lot of time when I was growing up in school watching Schindler's List and talking about what happened to the Jewish people. And it it was a it was a verb to the point about displacement. I think even I've heard people say we shouldn't refer to ourselves as slaves. We were enslaved people. Someone did the enslaving. We saw the action of, of what was happening. We saw how terrible it was. We named Hitler and his people as the bad guys. There was a bad guy in the story. There were innocent people that it happened to. And the story was beaten to our heads over and over and over again. When you grow up that way, I think it's a lot easier to jump on board with, well, terrible things happen to the Jewish people. Of course, we've got to do something. Whereas I grew up in Virginia. So the way we learned about slavery was it was states' rights. It was a states' rights case. When they showed 
you know, pictures of MLK. And when they show pictures of Malcolm X, they're generally in black and white because they want you to believe it happened a long, long time ago. The stories are not given the same dignity. A lot of times you see the pictures of the slaves, they're smiling in the field or we're learning about the happy slave songs that they were singing. So I think from no, the- Nobody nobody wants to talk about the 24-hour raping of black women. 100%. And I think that that strategy of how we've portrayed what happened to what happened to Jewish people versus who black people are like you were slaves not you were enslaved by white people all of that is playing in the back of our minds as we then become adults and we're starting to think about policy and how do we how do we affect well slavery it happened a long time ago not all slave masters were bad so is this something that we really need to make a big deal about we learned those same lies in New York. So I just want to say that's not just Virginia. And then in a way, it became this uh, white savior thing as well, because then it got framed as the North versus the South. And the North Pole were the good people, and including the good white people who were then you know, freeing the slaves from the South. And very much erased were the, the battles that enslaved people did themselves, that Black people did ourselves in, in freeing ourselves. That part was never worked into the story. Nor was worked into the story that a lot of people in the North didn't give a rat's ass about slavery, knew nothing about it. They just didn't want the country to break into two. Yeah. Or that there were folks in the North with slaves as well. We have an African burial ground right here in New York City of people who were enslaved right here. And if you ground everything in truth, then you come out with a much better end result. It is so dangerous. And now they're pushing against truth. Now you have a president who lied 24 hours a day. And they're, and they're like, oh, well, you know what? He just, he just kind of speaks his mind. No, you know he's lying. We got to push back against truth. And then we can have a more nuanced argument about, okay, well, I see you're a Republican, whatever, whatever, but maybe you're not one of the, the racists, this, that, the others. But first, we got to start with the same set of facts. Well, the fact here that I love that you brought up, Kristen, is that there was only one supermarket in a black community. So, you know, when I when we talk about all of these things on Friends Like Us, I always want to get to the specifics of what really is the issue. And what Kristen does, which is really good work, is why was there one supermarket in this community? And then Reverend Al Sharpton said at a prayer vigil held in Buffalo for victims' families on Thursday, he said, if you can figure out how to get millions of dollars for a stadium, can't you figure out how to get a supermarket? So he's referring to a new $1.4 billion home turf plan for the Buffalo Bills that will be funded largely by taxpayers. So, you know, Kristen, you do this work in Harlem as well. Like, you see that in Buffalo and what went wrong? Like, how did how did that... I mean, this is what I mean by the dollars. The public dollars are part of the violence. This is that is exactly what I mean. And now you I want to go to this controversial Harlem 145 Tower plan to add more affordable housing where. So uh, you both may not know this, but this is a. Um, uh, OK, let me set it up. Um 
The 145, the name for a massive pair of 363-foot tower, has, has since it was proposed last year, faces strong opposition from community members concerned about gentrification and the lack of affordable housing. Now, Kristen, you can really speak to it, but I don't know where we are. And can you let our listeners know what this is about? So where, where we are right now is we need other council members throughout the city to stand with the people of Harlem. That's where we are. So we had a public hearing on this project. I've come out against it. Numerous people in the community have come out against it. Uh, But this has to be voted on by the city council. Uh, So what it is, and it's, it's actually coming down the pike in the next two weeks, is it is a vote on whether or not to upzone the area of 145th and Lenox Avenue. Upzone means that right now they can only build but so tall. They actually can only build about 50 units of housing. Uh, what they want to do with this project is they want to upzone and go really high um, and create very tall buildings, otherwise known as skyscrapers. And um, and they want to make 915 units of housing. So of those 915 units of housing, there are 27, I repeat, two Seven, twenty-seven, that are what we would call what? deeply affordable. I thought it was two hundred. As in, <laughs> no, I'm getting to the lie to work off of what John was saying. So there's twenty-seven that are actually deeply affordable units, actually at a, a place where Harlemites could afford them. Then there's a number of supportive housing units that bumps it up to about ninety units. Um, if you include the supportive housing. Uh, for seniors and the deeply affordable, you're at about 90 units, of which I would argue Harlem can actually live in. That's it. That's the whole ball game, okay? Because the the numbers that they are lying about are uh, are fake affordable. What is this? What Trump did with his towers? Right? Too? So they're saying. So it's um it, it is a program called MIH, which stands for Mandatory Inclusionary Housing. And what they do is they call the apartments affordable, but they set that at a place, uh, an average that is based on putting together the incomes of not just Harlem, but Midtown, Downtown, even parts of Westchester, all go into this algorithm that they then decide, okay, this is quote unquote affordable. This is why we have these things going up that people are saying, oh, this is affordable housing and no one from Harlem can live there. The median income in this community is 49,000. Now, if you look at the census track for that particular area and you take into account longtime Harlem residents, so not the new gentrify, um, not the new people who are part of the gentrification, you're now looking at about 35,000. So, so when you put in a unit, that is at um, an income level, 100% AMI means you actually make 90,000 a year. You put that in and call it affordable when the community cannot afford that. And this is a lie told here in Harlem, but it's a, li- it's a national lie. We are lying about what is affordable. We are making it up based on measurements that are not actually based on the communities. So this is why I'm so vehemently against 145. Uh, and when people say, oh, well, she doesn't want the affordable housing, they're lying to you. 
I would like some housing that my community can actually live in. And before we upzone an area and take it from 50 units to wow. 915 units, we need to get something for the community for that. They're making buku bucks. And it's another form of, of displacement. <laughs> it is. When you look it at is. the facts. It is. And you've created a task force. Can you speak to that? Because I know I've been on there. I'll, I'll be there tonight. Um, Definitely. But you know, a lot of times I come on, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm like, I'm listening and I'm like, I don't want to. Sometimes I like no, to say things, but I, I, just to say things, but I always, <laughs> I'm listening. I'm like, I want to make sure I'm asking the right questions, but tell them what you've actually done. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. We we made a housing task force um, and I created it because we, we meet on Zoom every week and we talk about the different housing issues and we really work on fighting back against what I see as an onslaught of um, development and landlord um, really taking advantage of our community and it's not acceptable. And it's happened for a long time and we shouldn't allow it to keep happening. And actually the people who have been in my seat have allowed it to happen. And we should be honest about that too, because we've had political leadership that has voted for these projects um, and that have even taken kickbacks from these projects. Let's just be real about that. So we need to uh, take a stand. Um, what is exciting in this case is that me, the local council member, the community board, and our borough president are all on the same side of saying this is a no. This project is a no. I read the article and I saw that you had all of that a lot because you have to get it, it becomes so political. And then Reverend Al Sharpton also pulled out of this because they were going to do a, is this a civil rights museum that was supposed to be there? I mean, that was the kicker. They were including a civil rights museum and the civil rights museum was supposed to be basically the carrot. Like you all should want this big housing project that is going to displace the community because we're going to also make a civil rights museum. <laughs> Which is terrible. That's terrible. That's terrible. So you're so basically the creation of a museum that none of us will be going to. And this to. this developer is Giuliani's boy, by the way. He used to work with Giuliani, right? This developer or is is it developer? Am I saying it right? Yeah, chief of yeah. staff. This is Giuliani's boy for Giuliani. So. But it's also it's also just a terrible project. It really it really is. It's a terrible project. The numbers are are bad. It's not a good deal. That's what I'm saying. I, I wouldn't be against making a deal if we had an actual deal. It's not a, this is not a deal. This is something that is going to be uh, just, just terrible for the neighborhood. It's going to make a lot of money for a very small fraction of people, and it's going to displace everyone else. So I'm hoping that we will get the vote in the city council. Uh, that my colleagues will stand with me and vote no on this project. I am hopeful about it. Uh, we have gotten some pushback because some of the um, unions have backed the developer. Because, of course, if they build this, then there's more um, there's more labor, right? So they get more more uh, jobs. Isn't that always the members. argument? Like um, you're you're stopping the production of jobs, but who the job the job creators? But who? So who's how do I how do I say this? How do we because I have, by the way, I have people in the media that I've tried to push your story out to. And oh, do you feel that. like this story is being put out there in the right way or, or enough? Um, it's a it's been a real mixed bag. I think 
I think there's an overriding narrative throughout the whole city that we just need to build housing and we should just build housing. And it doesn't matter if it's market rate, we just need more housing. And the theory is that because there's a housing crisis, if we build more housing, then there'll be more homes for everybody. And that if we build more of it, then somehow the price, the demand will like lessen and the price will go down. But this is not something that we've seen in practice actually happen historically. Um, And also it's the market rate housing is nowhere near what we in central Harlem can afford. You're talking about only one in 10 uh, people who can afford that market rate. So if, if we go with that theory of just build housing, it doesn't matter if it's regulated, it doesn't matter, it, it just, just build market rate housing, um, our people are going to be long gone from this neighborhood by the time that even could possibly get to a level where there's enough housing that it goes down to being at a rate that, that we would be able to live there. So the regulation is it. This is it. This is it. The designated affordable units is it. And instead of doing this thing where the the developers hoodwink us and they claim some units are affordable, they put like some so-called affordable units that aren't even actually affordable to our community into a much larger project. What we should be pushing for is for there to be a small portion of market rate. Because only one in 10 people can afford that. So have 10, 20% market rate and do the rest in different levels that actually cover the different income levels in our community. And make sure to have deeply affordable units because that's where the community actually is at. So, um, you know, the way I see it, I'm not stopping the union jobs. They're stopping the union jobs by, by being so unreasonable, by building something that is only going to further displace us. You know, at what point are we going to build what the community actually so needs? So what I what I hear is very useful information for a lot of people who are listening when they don't understand what is really going on and how you can get involved. I, I think, Kiara, doesn't this not speak to like how you start to heal is when you start to get involved in the way you know how? Absolutely. And I, I think what stood out the most to me, Kristen was talking about was just like, there's this other competing narrative that if we do this, 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 and this, then, you know, everything will, will be work out and it'll be fine. And I think that is, in my opinion, I'm also a a radio host for KBLA 1580 to have a smiley station. And we have uh, Black Lives Matter has a show on Saturdays. And uh, one of the hosts is Melina, who's a big deal in the Black Lives Matter community. And we've had some conversations with her about just even the struggles that Black Lives Matter has had getting the, the narrative out. Because to John's point, the truth is important. But what we also know is that there is a large number of people who do not care about the truth. They don't care what the truth is. They could read the facts. They could read the statistics. They could hear what the truth is and still feel like, well, I don't care if that's what the facts are and make whatever up, whatever reason they need to make up in order to believe whatever, continue to believe whatever you want to believe. Because before you can learn, you have to do an unlearning. Before they can accept a new truth or a new fact, they have to be willing to let go of what they've been spoon fed, which takes a lot of work on your ego 
somebody who does not want to let go of who their grandmama told them they are, how they believed the world was when they were growing up, whatever politician they've you know been supporting since they were little, they're not going to just, they, they have to pour out their cup and make it empty before they can fill in with like your own truth and your own facts. And so for you, Kristen, I can imagine how frustrating it is when you're trying to say, hey, this is this is what I'm trying to do is a more effective, strategic way of moving forward. But people can't hear you because they're so stuck in. We just need more homes. And how hard it can be, I imagine, to encourage people to just put down what I call put out, put down whatever it is that you were brought up with, whatever preconceived notions you came in the door with, just set it down and allow yourself to be open to what I have to say. But that trickle down theory has proven over and over to not work. You know what I mean? The truth of the matter is that, oh, if we just build it, you know, if we just let these rich people build this thing, then then the prices of that's not worked. We've seen that for 30 or 40 years, people trying that trickle down theory. There's no evidence. Do you guys follow uh, Candace Owens? who I, my, my arch nemesis in life, I follow her so I can see what's going on. Then I have to unfollow her because I get so angry. And then I follow her back so I can see what's going on. And then I unfollow because I get so angry. I I bought her book and tried to force myself to read the beginning because I was like, she's black. I'm big on strategy. I'm a lawyer. If If I go into a room and negotiate, I need to know something about who I'm negotiating with. It allows me to negotiate more effectively. I had to put the book down and it started with the whole thing about the trickle down theory. If you just give more rich white people more money, then eventually you'll get money to where, when, because the history that I know says that when rich white people had money, they just used black and brown people to create more wealth for themselves. I, I never seen it trickle down. Where is that coming but from? But that wasn't. But that wasn't always that. And factually, I'm, I couldn't agree with you more, Kiara. But factually, that wasn't always true. Take for example Henry Ford. Henry Ford's whole thought process was to make the car affordable. Because if only rich people could afford his cars, how many could you sell? Do you know what I mean? When you have, when people have millions and billions of dollars, how many cars can Elon Musk buy? If that money is spread out amongst millions of people, then the economy builds itself up. How many houses can one person buy? How many businesses is one person gonna open? There's no truth to that trickle down. The people who are, 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 are convincing these, these, these poor people that they need to live in a right to work state, you know, why don't you just go ahead and work for seven or eight bucks an hour so that we can own the whole mine, you know what I mean, and make these billions of dollars and sit on a yacht. What are those people really contributing? Their money's in some bank somewhere else off the coast. It's nonsensical, but they are. The one thing I will say is this. They are far better communicators than the Democrats have ever dreamed of being. We live in, we are, we exist in a party that is so bad at communication. It is borderline criminal. Well, that's what Kristen is for. So Kristen, I, that's a perfect, you know, for you, Kristen. <laughs> so, no, I'm laughing because well, it is we true. are facing like, a, a Senate and a House that may yeah. turn Republican. So how, what are we? Oh, I just hope it. I hope it's not true. <laughs> but keep, this is the narrative they keep forcing down our throats. Is it true? 
Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask all you guys this. Well, I just want to ask Kristen that. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, before you, before you, and then we'll go to if it's true. What, in the event that Democrats got the House and the Senate, what could we expect to get from them? Name one thing. Thank you. Thank right, you. Right. That's the. What that's are we fighting problem. for? Right. That's none of us know. It was silence. Yeah. What? Wait. What did you say for Democrats? I said well, in the event that I know what, what would happen if the Republicans got the House, they would mm-hmm. turn over Roe versus Wade. I know what they're going to do. They're going to get rid of, of voting. Uh, they're going to try to kill voting, especially for minorities. What do we get if we get power? What I are think, we fighting for? John, to your point, I, I think it's just my opinion as someone not in politics. So much of what I've seen from the Democratic Party, there's a lot of bonding based on the trauma that we know Republicans will inflict and not a lot of bonding based on mutual goals and clear-cut objectives, which means most of us are anti-Republican, but for a lot of us, there isn't something that's actually unifying us as it pertains to how do we move forward. Exactly. And the, and the times... And the times that it was on the table where we had something that we had on the table, for example, health care. Democrats went to war for that and got the seat, got it passed. And then eventually when they tried to overturn it, we went to fight for it again and got the seats again. But at least we knew what we were fighting for. But I but I think part of the issue, and I'm going to say this, and I know some of my fellow Democrats may even get mad at me, but I think sometimes as a party, we eat our young and we have this thing about pushing against the progressives within the party. Now, I say this as a young progressive, I know that, but we are actually talking about a vision of what we are for. The progressive vision that this party internally battles and struggles with, that's the vision. So what should we do, we're talking about um, eliminate student debt. We're talking about move towards free tuition, you know, therapy. How about we have mental health services and we work on decriminalizing and decarcerating and instead having healthcare and resources, including mental wellness. This is the vision but we should be talking about. But instead of saying some dumb shit like defund the police, everything you just said, Kristen, why don't we call that America needs a raise? People would respond to that. <laughs> well, I think we should be saying, well, we should be saying fund the people. And I have said this even within our movement. And and I'll be honest, you know, I'm a Black Lives Matter activist. I, I was on the streets um, shouting uh, defund, you know, the, the, the only thing is we're getting caught up with the lacking part and not focus on the what we're funding part. And I think that's the part, right? So it's fund the people, funding the people, funding mental health services and resources that would actually decrease the violence in the community that makes, supposedly makes the police necessary to begin with. So how do we get to root causes? You know, but I think that piece of the conversation is often missing. Um, and, and similarly, I mean, I think, I think Kiara, you hit it on the, the nail on the head when you talked about like being anti-Republican as opposed to, you know, well, what I are think we really even fighting psychology for? proves like as much as I really, I hate to use the word hate as strong as a person can dislike, um, Donald Trump, I, that applies, 
make America great again was a genius slogan because it was active and it was positive. I think when people hear defund the police, they hear undoing. So it's an unraveling. And then what's next? Even if that's the goal, I think, again, how we say things is incredibly important. I I do believe that a lot of people, because we live in a world where people read memes, they read quickly, they don't open up and they're not going to read the full manifesto. I've, you know, I've done the thing where I write like super long articles and pages and the people who read it are usually the people who didn't need to read it in the first place. And the people who do need to read it will just skip over it. And a saying like fund the people, I think a lot of people would probably respond a lot better to that. It sounds active. It sounds progressive. It sounds forward thinking, not, so now we're just going to go back. What are you going to do instead? What are you going to do with no police? What am I going to do? And all this <laughs> stuff that happened. It's just but like, think- it's just like when they, when they came with the repeal and replace, it didn't work for them. Cause it was like, okay, but then what are you going to do? They were in that same boat. But I think that our side is literally, I almost, I'm not joking. I think it's borderline criminal. The communication, the messaging, the marketing on our side is is so horrific that it every day, like Marina was saying, I, I start sweating when I watch Democrats talk about what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. It's like you people just don't get it. And at some point in time, you got to say, I wish that a Democrat would come on TV and say, hey, we're really horrible at this. We need help because we have great minds. <laughs> I do. That's not a politician. And then listen, you said, she, he said, elicit some Yo, help. One of the reasons listen. that I, comedian, a, Marina can idea. tell you, all I've done is comedy for the last who knows number of years, was able to build an app. I'm good at knowing what I don't know. If you don't know how to do something, raise your hand and ask for help. I was never one of those guys that would drive around in a car before we had it in our phones and be like, oh, I'll just find it. Nope. Hey, excuse me. I will ask for help. Our party is the worst. It is. It's, That's a good it's, thing to say on a date, by the way. Just what's so that? What you just said about like, I'll ask for help when I'm lost on the road. That's a great opening line for a date. Oh, <laughs> I, I, am I right? I, I, I wish our side would do it. I wish our side would do it. And we just won't. It's a fair question. I wanted to say to um, um, the point about trauma uh, and talking about defund the police is that our community has experienced such intense trauma. And I also think a lot of the organizers who are on the front lines, um, including myself, I have, I have police-involved trauma. I was falsely arrested. You know, many of us are grappling with that. So I think that that part about, you know, being positive is really hard because a lot of the organizers are literally dealing with their own trauma at the same time that we're talking about this collective trauma of policing and the white supremacist legacy that is policing. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I disagree. I'm just it's just something that came to the surface for me about I just want to say, because Kristen, you did have like this article that kind of, I, I feel like they kind of came at you when those two officers were murdered in Harlem. Yeah. And they really 
started to take a deep dive into your history. Like, how did you deal with that? And did it change in the way that you started to communicate about defunding the police? Well, well, I was really disappointed with the article. I felt like, I felt like it was, yeah, I felt like it was really dehumanizing. I felt like I laid out 10, 12 steps about how we do a restorative justice model, how we invest in mental health, how we need trauma-informed care, how we need a community collective response to violence. And none of it was in the article, <laughs> you know? I just say that there, there are other creative ways for us to think about how we address issues of violence in the community, um, especially if we're going to be trauma-informed. And um, yeah, I was really disappointed that the narrative really turned into an us and them narrative, which is not my message. And, and you never did say they were been. looking for so, an enemy. That's what they do. And they... I, that, I mean, this is this is what it's been about. And a lot of the backlash came because the officers that were killed in the in in my district, um, that there was also a a 46 year old mentally unwell man who was also killed in that shootout. And I gave condolences to all three mothers. And that actually sparked the hate because people said, how can you offer condolences to the mother of someone who shot at cops? Um, even though, like I said, there's a long history of mental illness there. And part of what I speak about with radical love is this idea of love for all of humanity. Um, That's what I loved about your, your, your comeback was that it's about, cause I've often, I've, I don't know. I just went into a British act accent. So often, but oftentimes, I have noticed the send off for cops in these situations is very big. But I'm like, they're human, just like what happened to the people who just died in Buffalo? Where's their send off? Where's their parade? Why aren't we standing out? I mean, this should be like, like in Washington right now. We should have a moment, a real moment of silence. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't if, if our if our humanity matters as much as anyone else's, but to what we were talking about earlier with the trauma, Kiara and Kristen speaking about the cops when this thing broke out and the storytelling also that you were talking about, Kiara. So that's why during that time, the Black Lives Matter thing that happened, I created what was called the John Laster Challenge. So it was essentially. Black men and women talking about our experiences with the police. And I'll never forget, I get this DM from this white guy. And he said, whenever somebody brings up the police, my dad used to be a cop. He's a Trump supporter, whatever, whatever. He always gets very defensive. But he said, until he started watching the stories on your page. Because I put around 20, 25 of my friends and he, he started asking his son, hey, did that guy put out another thing? And then eventually said, how could this guy know this many people who have had this many experiences with the police? And there was no political slant. It was just talking to camera within 60 seconds. Yeah, you wow. can go on my Instagram. That's yeah. beautiful. And then the yeah, New York Times that. picked it up. Yeah, then the New York Times picked it up. But again, it's about our trauma that people are, you can take it or leave it. And there was no judgment in it and our stories. So this guy, this, this kid hits me and he says, um, it's working. Keep going. Wow. Well, that's brought, brought me to tears one morning. 
I love everything about what you just said. And it's why I'm so passionate about storytelling and really passionate about telling and convincing other Black people how important it is, hard though it may be, to share their stories, which is why I do think, to your other point, Kristen, about people on the front lines dealing with their own trauma, why therapy is important, why it's important for us to process, because it's really hard to go and process with a third party if you haven't been able to process with yourself. Like Sometimes you just got to sit and cry about it first and feel the feelings before you open yourself up to sharing because there may be people who are receptive. There may be people who are not so kind. And if you are in a place where you're traumatized, for example, talking about defund the police because something just happened to you and somebody challenges you, it might feel a lot more personal if you haven't had time to work through what's happening inside when their intention might've been to, you know, push back from a political lens or from a, we need to figure out the right way to move forward lens. It can just be really hard to respond. I think when we have a lot of our own trauma that we haven't dealt with and the storytelling thing is so incredibly important because I watch shows like this is us and sometimes television commercials and will ball. I went to law school. Not once did I open up a textbook full of terrible cases and cry. There's something our body responds to viscerally when we hear somebody's story to the point where little kids understand. When they're trying to you know, tell you about their day, they don't say, I walked three steps, I put on my shoes, I tied my shoes. They say, no, I went and I had a good day, played with my friends. Storytelling comes so naturally to us as human beings it allows us to communicate with someone a toddler's age who might not have even experienced a lot of life yet. And I do think that's a, a great area of opportunity for the Democratic Party to, instead of just being the anti whatever Republicans are, to insert our own stories, to actually take control of the narrative as, a po- as opposed to just responding to the crazy narratives that the other side is spinning. I I think what the New York Times just did this weekend with what happened in Haiti is the beginning of that, too. They really detailed the cell, you know, that Haitians had to pay for their freedom, um, I believe. But I haven't I have not started reading it, but I believe my friend Zawadi Morris, she was talking about how it's so easy to read as well. Like the New York Times, you know, sort of like a clap back to them you know, taking out um, of our stories in school, you know, and really putting them in places where people can access it easily, read it. And it's, it's like, it's definitely something that everyone should, if you're listening to this, check out in the New York Times, them really telling the real story about Haitians, and how why Haiti is where it is um, today. And my family is Haitian, so it's it's always uh, alarming to me how little people know about Haiti and the truth behind what happened. I mean, my conspiracy theory mind, which I don't think is a conspiracy theory, is that we were the first slaves to successfully revolt and win our freedom against, against this slave expansion, and they've been punishing Haiti for it ever since. 
So I, I don't want to keep you all too much longer because I know, Chris, I know you have a lot of work to do, so I don't want to stop you from that work. But I do have to ask you uh, these two questions, and then we're going to get out. One, what do you think of Mayor Adams? I have to ask you that. And, I mean, you know, my approval rating of him is like the what happened to the stocks last week. It took a dive. Um. And I don't know if it can come back, but what what do you think of his job so far? Yeah, it's it's not been impressive, and and you know what I'll say is um, it's not just political differences. So very clearly, I have political differences from this mayor. I'm I'm to the left of him, but again, I'm I'm to the left of most people. I'm pretty pretty progressive, pretty radical politics over here, um, and yet I've been able to have more constructive conversations with conservatives in the city council with me um, than I have, you know, with the Democratic mayor. Um, and that's because there's been a real, uh, just my way or the highway attitude from this mayor. Yes. Um, and there's been a, a real lack of collaborative thinking, collaborative working. Um, there, there really isn't any sense of working with council members who may feel differently. Um, and that's just really unfortunate. And it's really to the detriment of New Yorkers because, you know, if, if you cut off, um, and he's been very vocal about this, about ignoring the progressive wing, quote unquote, and, you know, that that's not going to be a way to move us forward um, if we can't have you know, if we really can't just have communication. Uh, so, so yeah, I've been really disappointed in that. I'm also disappointed in the budget. It, um, we are looking right now at a, a city budget that is an austerity budget that has cuts across the board. Um, and, uh, and, and we actually have a surplus in money. And we have a lot of need coming out of COVID and, and even still dealing with COVID. The numbers have just risen. Um, so I think it's a time for spending on the things that are needed and um, definitely not a time for cutting social services or cutting mental health or cutting um, resources that are needed. Uh, and this budget does that. So I'm also very concerned about that. Um, and I wholeheartedly disagree with the sweeps of the homeless encampments. I thought it was heartless and cruel. And, um, and I think there were other ways to address uh, homelessness. Yeah, they had like a... Um like a mental health team. I have yet to see them. Like they should have like colored jackets on or something. So I know they're there. Like, I don't know that they're there. They talk about it, but then they're not. I don't, I like on the subway in the platforms. Cause I, I do part kind of ways with that only in the subways. Um, everywhere else I get it where it's like the, the sweeping of them was cruel, but on the subways I get a little, it's really bad right now. And I will say that that's just me dealing day to day with the potential of, you know, I was actually approached on the subway heading home this weekend and I didn't know if that was going to be the end of my life. Um, and so I don't, I don't see these mental, I don't see mental health in the subways. I don't see these units, these troop people, they say they're out. I don't know what's going on. Um, but I hear talk about more police officers, plainclothes officers, 
And, you know, for a moment, I'll be honest, I was like, yes, please get them down there. We need protection. But then at the same time, I was like, well, are they going to protect? And then that shooting that did happen in Brooklyn kind of proved that he, Mayor Adams said there's going to be all of these officers. They did nothing. And the cameras weren't working. So the solution isn't in just police presence. It's like you said, it's there's so many issues that aren't being dealt with. Um, what can... Yeah, I have a um, I have a bill that I'm introducing. I'm a prime sponsor on a bill called mm-hmm. Housing First, and it would actually shift our city charter from being a right to shelter city to a right to housing city. So actually, in New nice. York City right now, you do not have the right to a home. You have only the right to shelter. And um, part of the issue that I feel like we're facing is that the shelters are horrible. That's why people are on the streets. So you have the shelter system, which is is horrible. It feels dangerous. It doesn't have the right mental services provided in it. Um, and then we're not having the permanent housing solutions. So so the 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 reason why I feel like it's cruel is because we still haven't dealt with the underlying cause of why people are out on the street and why they're experiencing mental illness out on the street. If he's not willing to communicate and listen, then what do we have? A dictator? I mean, like, I saw it right away when he said, it doesn't matter. I am your mayor. I was like, I'm sorry. Am I a child? Are you my father? What the hell are you talking about? You know, like, no, you have, no, you, no, you work for me. Uh, Just a reminder, Mayor Adams, you work for us. It's just another man telling me what to do. And I'm not into it. I'm really not into it on a very visceral level. And on that note, uh, yo, I, you know what? I have, a, I do have an investor meeting at two 30. You should have told me that John, it says in the email, you got to let me know when you have a hard out. Oh, I'm sorry. And then John, tell our listeners where they can find you. Um, you can find me at, he was funny. Please download, um, black. On um, it's on the on iOS as well as Android. Um, but yeah, you could hit me. At, he was funny. Go to Blap the app, download Blap, and with friends like us, life is getting better. Yes. Okay, John, you're free to go. You ladies stay. Bye. Okay. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Thank you guys for the was, man to was, leave. It was so. Peace. It was great hanging with you guys. Thank. <laughs> Nice meeting you. you. As we do exit, I will say, Kristen, um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? And also, if you could add in a little bit of what they can do to get in touch with their constituents, their, you know. Yes. So you can you can definitely find me at KristenForHarlem.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. Two eyes because my eyes are wide open. KristenForHarlem.com. And uh, we have events every week. We have different task forces, including the housing task force. Uh, so you can sign up. You can put in a constituent service request if if there's any issues. Um, you can also volunteer. And we definitely could use the help um, to just do outreach and volunteer in the community in a whole bunch of ways. Um, Thank you for being accessible. Like as I was able to oh, find you quite easily on Instagram. So and then you always send out the emails to join. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I really wanted to do, I really intentionally wanted to break down this wall where people don't get to ever see their local politician or talk to them or anything. So, um, and it's hard to keep up, but we're we're, uh, making that effort, so. 
with friends like us, we'll build this movement together. Yes, thank you. Kiara, where can our listeners find you and a friends like us? Yes, I wanted to say first, Kristen, you are such an incredible communicator and such a good sport. I know we were talking about a lot of Democratic politicians feeling like they're not communicating well or they're not listening. And that was not my experience with you at all. So thank you for being an example and for caring, for sharing your story and for being so accessible. And I think you should run for president and push uh, fund the people. That is a great, great slogan, fund the people. I love it. Um, Kiara, you can find me on Instagram at Kiara Imani Will. K-I-A-R-A-I-M-A-N-I. Imani means faith, will. And you can find me on Twitter, Kiara underscore Imani, or my website, www.kiaraimani.com. Definitely, if you're interested in getting the Like You cards, they are available at Target, so you can find them there. And you can pre-order my book, Therapy Isn't Just for White People, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Bookshop, Uh, If you want to buy from a local black bookstore, which I am definitely encouraging, please encourage your local black bookstores to buy the book because I would love for people to buy from black owned spaces because where we spend our dollars does matter. Uh, So that's my plug for black bookstores. And with friends like us, you can feel confident that people care about what's going on with you. Oh my God. Thank you ladies so much. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. With friends like us, you can have the privilege and the honor to have the most intelligent, beautiful, successful, and uh, progressive women on Friends Like Us. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Please come back to at any time. Please come back to Friends Like Us. Thank you so much. Check us out.